Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson for Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. We are today continuing an interview with Father Joseph Fessio of the Society of Jesus. The first part of our interview today picks up where we left off, but we find Father Fessio now in France. He's speaking about a beard he had grown when he was in California before being assigned to his theology in France. We talk about his relationship with the great theologian Henri de Lubac, his thesis director, Joseph Ratzinger, at Regensburg, Germany, his dissertation topic. We talk about the theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, and we look at the papacy of Pope Benedict XVI, Cardinal Ratzinger, in its many different dimensions, beginning with his work at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and his role in shaping the church during those very formative years. This was the hippie years, right? I went to visit Joan Baez, and, you know, Bob, I was wearing Bermuda shorts and, and you know, black shirt and a cross <laughs> around the neck, and I, I learned to play the guitar. We, we've got to get a picture of you from that era, Joe. I, People, have, I, have, I, there's, I got a picture of that if you want it. <laughs> I, I, I would like, we'll post that on when we do the, when we do the blog. <laughs> okay. And so, but I, I, I was kind of grow a beard, okay? And it, it was a pretty scraggly thing. It never, never uh-huh. developed it much. But the rector of the community was the Father Copeland, and he, he had been a chaplain in World War II, and he was one of these kind of real old-fashioned guys. And I was the only scholastic in the community, and so I was the young buck. And I, I found out that he was very distressed by this and, you know, was very upset by this. So I went to see the provincial in San Francisco, Father Pat Donahoe. Mm-hmm. He had been the president of Santa Clara the year when I got there and started Project 50. So I knew him from that, and he, he had given me okay. the permission to do the Project 50. But I drove up with, with Father Buckley to San Francisco to the old provincial, which were the provincial stays, on Lyon Street, San Francisco. And I said, well, you know, Father Dono, I said, look, I just want to be a faithful Jesuit. I mean, I, I'm happy to shave the beard. I'm not a rebel. He laughed. He said, have you ever thought about going to Europe for theology? <laughs> you know, I was out of the blue. And I said, huh, well, no, I haven't. Do you want me to think about it? He says, well, yeah, why don't you think about it? Nice, so nice. I'm, I'm driving back with Father Buckley. to It's about a 50-mile drive. And he had been in France for his theology at a place called Fourvière, which is near Lyon, mm-hmm. a Jesuit theology school there at the time. It no longer exists there. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to France then. So that was what led me to go to France for my theology. Nice. Oh, by the way, related to this Project 50, I'm not sure if I got the insight then, if I got it in later years or after Ignatius Press and so on. But, you know, I wanted to be an engineer and build things. I felt I had a talent for that. I had an interest in that. And then I ended up being a Jesuit priest and not being an engineer. But I thought about Simon becoming Peter. Simon was a fisherman, and God called him to be a fisher of men. And so I thought, you know, I was an engineer, and God called me to be a spiritual engineer. He wanted me to build things spiritually. And I, you know, I did Project 50, Ignatius Press, the Institute we'll talk about. And so I kind of look back on that and see, often, as you know, Bill, you, you, you see God's will looking backwards, providential circumstances in your life. And so that's that's what I kind of saw was that I, I was called from wanting to be an engineer building bridges to be an engineer building spiritual bridges. 
That's great. I'm going to get into, I want to do a section later about your graduate studies and then your relationship with Cardinal Ratzinger, who then became uh, Pope Benedict XVI. But I'd like to, with your permission, kind of move up to 2002 and to talk about some of the crisis in church and social society, if I can have your permission sure, to, that's fine, to do a we'll, segue. When we come back, I mean, the beard is the connection because that's what got me to France. Okay. <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good. I, <laughs> I right. want to. I want to get that picture because okay. I don't think that people will. Because I think the first time I saw you in person, I was in theology and I was doing a summer two courses at USF. You were in the community at the time. Oh, this yeah. would have been in the eighties. And the first okay. time I saw you, you had a cassock on. That's right. So the Bermuda shorts, the beard, and the black shirt with the cross, it does that. I didn't see that part of you yep. at that time. That's right. I want to switch now over to Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger and Pope Benedict for a whole section on that. Well, let, let's start with the beard again, okay? Because I get to France. Okay. Rivière, I'm stumbling around, mumbling in French and not doing too well, but I. Did you I have get, any French? Did you have to learn French to go over I there? had to learn French. I went to Quebec for six weeks before I got there. I think I came in the summer to France and spent some time up in Brittany. And then, then I came to Lyon, or Fourvier, beautiful place, where St. Irenaeus, his church, where he was bishop, was just 100 yards away from our seminary there. From, beautiful. Beautiful. Fourvier. But I got to know Father de Lubac, and Henri de Lubac is one of the great Jesuits of the 20th century. I mean, I his, agree. I his agree. story is just a beautiful story, and he, he was a wonderful priest, Jesuit, and a scholar, and a writer, and a man of the church. And he was not teaching at the time. He was kind of sidelined, because this was now 1969, and... Everything pre-Vatican II was looked upon with suspicion, and so he wasn't regarded very highly at all. But to me, he was he was a giant, and so and, and he was one of the great theologians that shaped the the Council, the Vatican Council, wasn't he? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You read his book *Splendor of the Church*; it's it's almost like *Lumen Gentium*. So, uh, you know, I got to know him very well, and uh, he guided me through the fathers of the Church, and I still remember because I didn't drink either when I was a kid or even in college, but I. I began to drink wine when I was in France, and I remember going down into the basement library and reading about the Martyrs of Vienne, which mm -hmm. is just 20 miles downstream from, from Lyon, and reading writings of Irenaeus of Lyon and having a glass of wine there and just beginning to weep. You know, wow, wow. This I, I felt like he was my next-door neighbor. Like It was like reading someone from yesterday. I mean, the way he expressed the faith and so on. So I began I get, got a great love for the history of the church. By the way, being in France as an American, you know, I'm from the West Coast where the oldest things at the time were 50 years old. <laughs> That's right. You, know, you, you come to France, and my gosh, you go to a church that was built in 1200. So that was real mind-opening for me. But, I, you know, I, I got to know him well, and he was on and off sick because he was injured in World War One. And he had he had these bouts of sickness that would come, and so I would kind of take care of him, and he would dictate his letters to me, and I, you know, send them out for him. Well, your French must have been pretty good by that time to be able to take that dictation. <laughs> I could I could listen to it and write it down. Okay. And I could type it, although the accents were bad on my typewriter. But anyway, I, I really could never speak. I never I never learned it really well. But anyway, one day I'm in his office, and his phone rings, and I get up to leave. He says, "No." Uh, Stay there. So I stay. I hear this conversation. Oh, no, I'd, I'd love to come, but I really can't. Uh, oh, thank you very much. No, 
uh, waits up for some other time. He hangs up. I said, who was that? He said, well, that was Carmen Voyot, Secretary of State. You know, he wants me to be present for the meeting of the new International Papal Theological Commission. But I really can't. I'm, I'm not well, and I, I can't go alone, and there's no one who will accompany me. I said, well, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. <laughs> you know? He picks up the phone. He calls the Secretary of State back. He says, okay, I'm coming. What year What year is this again, Joe? That would have been 1970 or 71. 70? Okay. So I go to Rome with him, and I'm with him at this meeting. And who's at this meeting? Uh, Lonergan is there. Rahner is there. Congar. Bouillet. Wow. Ratzinger. I mean— this is the A-team, the, the superstars of theology of the mid-20th yeah. century, right? Amazing, amazing. And then we're staying at the Bellarmino, which is the house for Jesuit graduate students in Rome. Great, great place. Beautiful place. Wonderful place. And it's right near the old Rome, you know, Pesanamona and everything. But because Lubach was in Rome and he was well-known, and as you say, he was he was known as one of the important Peridian experts at the council, they had a public talk for him at the San Luigi dei Francesi, St. Louis of the French. It's the French National Church in Rome okay. on the Piazza Navona. So I, I brought him there and he's giving a talk on the role of the papacy in the early church. And I'm sitting there in the front row between Hans Urson Balthasar and Carol Wojtyla. <laughs> My goodness. Wow. How wonderful. <laughs> Who at the time was just a cardinal, you know? Sure, but, sure. But he's, he, he was a great friend of, of Father de Lubach, and I got a lot of stories about that, too. So de Lubach, I, I brought him. He was he got out of bed. I mean, he was sick, you know, and he, he, he's a frail old man. He sits up at the dice there behind a table, and he starts to talk about the role of Peter among the apostles and then the role of the early popes. And as he was doing this, I could just see light come into his eyes. His, his blood came into his face. I mean, he, he lit up. I mean, it was like watching the resurrection. The, the, his whole thing was the importance of the papacy in the church. And so the huge applause after But as soon as it was over, he grabbed my arm. He says, I need to get outside and get some fresh air. Grabs my arm. We walk outside. And he says, J'ai fait mon devoir comme Jésuite. J'ai défendu le pop. I've done my duty as a Jesuit. I've defended the Pope. It's really beautiful. Beautiful. So anyway, um, we're back at Fourvier. It's a three-year program for a master's degree. And I've got to start thinking about the doctorate because my provincial wants me to go to the doctorate. So I go to see Father Dudubach. And I remember exactly where I was standing in the building at the time. And I said, well, Father Dudubach, you know, what do you think I should do my doctorate on? He says, you know, Hans Urs von Balthasar. It's the greatest theologian of our time and perhaps of all time. I go, wow, that's a pretty good recommendation. I said, well, what, you know, you know, where should I do this? He says, well, there's a, there's a young theologian in Regensburg, Professor Ratzinger. He'll be a wonderful guide. And so the Lubach wrote to Ratzinger and asked Ratzinger to accept me as a doctoral student, and Ratzinger agreed. Who was, who was at that point simply a priest and a professor? A priest professor, Professor okay. Joseph Ratzinger. Yeah, this was okay. 1971 or 71. And so, Phil, when I think about the blessings in my life. I've always been the one who appreciates things that I can't, and others do things I can't. And I, I'm not a theologian like they are, not at all. Well, but it's just it, the story, even of, you know, being in the room with De Lubac and the phone call coming in. It's, well, I can't go there because nobody's going to accompany me. And just kind of all those graced moments just dropping in your lap. So that's I know. pretty, it was pretty just, wonderful. By the way, thinking about this interview was a great consolation for me because I'm old now and I'm still doing stuff. But 
I look back, wow, how, how did all this stuff happen? Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's too good to be true. <laughs> that's, that's how I got to Regensburg, and I did my thesis on von Balthasar. Got to know Ratzinger very well. What did you focus on in terms of von Balthasar's theology? I wanted to do something on the church. And when I got to Regensburg, the first time I got there, I met Ferdinand Ulrich who died this year, last year, 20 and 2020, one of the great philosophers, but unknown of the church. He said to me, well, what, you know, what are you going to do your thesis on? And I said, the church, we we're, t- were talking in German. He said, ah, ah, die Kirche, die Kirche ist Freiheit, die Kirche ist Freiheit. I said, wait a minute, the church is freedom. Yeah, the, yeah, the church makes you free, but it's not freedom. Nein, nein, die Kirche ist Freiheit. And so, I got to know him very well. I stayed at his house maybe five nights a week to learn German with his wife and his children and everything. Nice, nice. And he, he was the one that really helped my graduate studies there. But so that was, I did it on the church. <laughs> the, the official title is The Origin of the Church in the Kenosis of Christ, according to Hansus von Balthasar. And von Balthasar at this point had written most of his work. Well, I wouldn't say most of it, but he had written a lot because he died in 88 and this was 72 and he's writing okay. books every year after that. But he had started the, the, the Herrlichkeit. He was actually still on the first part of the trilogy on the, the theology, theological aesthetics. So that was another advantage. Bill, I knew I was not going to be a scholar. I wanted to build things. I didn't want to try and explore borders of the human mind. So I, and I wanted to get back to this. I loved Europe, you know, but I wanted to get back and get in the saddle and, and start doing things. So I, I did everything I could to compress things. And Balthasar, because he hadn't written as much then, and there was much less secondary literature, it was a much easier path to a doctorate. 10 or 20 books and maybe just a few articles about him and, and do my thesis on How long did it take you to write your dissertation? It took me, again, I, I'm always someone who tries to solve problems and you know find good solutions. So what I did when I was in the third year of Fourvier, we had to do our master's thesis. So I did my master's thesis as an introduction to Balthazar's ecclesiology. I actually only spent two years in Germany, 72 through 74, and I did all the coursework and all the preparation, and I actually came back and started teaching at USF in 1974 in the fall, Okay. and I and I wrote my thesis in that year, and so I think in 75, I got my degree, which, by the way, I've always thought it was a PhD, but it's not. It's a THD. I never heard of that, but Regensburg gives you a doctor in theology. Well, congratulations. I know there's, there's a lot of Jesuits that say that they're ABD, all but dissertation. How did Rotzinger help you with your, your dissertation? He was your uh, thesis director, wasn't he? He was, but I mean, honestly, you know, I went to his lectures and he had the seminars, but he had a bunch of graduate students that, you know, he was directing and that were doing a lot more serious work than I was. And so he didn't give me much direct help in that. But okay. his courses were, of course, illuminating. And it was Ulrich, especially, who was a good friend of Ratzinger's and Balthasar's. He was the one that really helped me uh, on my thesis. In fact, okay. uh, I've hesitated to say this because now it's recording, but, you know, I had all these, all these flashcards, you know, I'd made, you know, index cards of this and that and di- di- different themes because, I, you know, whenever I was reading his books, I'd look for ecclesiological stuff. Right. And it was, it was one Christmas vacation I went to the Riggy, which is a cabin up in Switzerland that belongs to Balthasar's religious community. 
uh, Secular Institute, and Ulrich Stein went up there, and I went, and I was going through these flashcards, the index cards, and he would start speaking. I'd write it down, and my thesis is as much written by Ferdinand Ulrich as it is by me. <laughs> well, that works. I like that. It's like Tom Sawyer getting people to help paint the fence. Yeah. <laughs> well, about this time, you know, going back to Rodzinger, even though um, there wasn't that much connection apart from his lectures. At early in his career, he was what might be considered a progressive thinker and theologian. And it is reported that somewhere around 1968, this is again for Joseph Ratzinger, became more cautious and conservative in his outlook. What were the events or catalysts that you were aware of that occasioned his intellectual transition at that time? Well, there was, and that was when he left to begin to go to Regensburg uh, after the 1968 risings in, in Europe. I would say, and this has been confirmed by his biographers who have done much more research than I have, but knowing him personally and having read almost all of his writing, I don't think he has changed in his thinking much at all, neither, neither did Dubach or Balthasar. They were considered progressive prior to the council because they were in favor of this patristic revival and the churchical revival and exegetical revival that was going on in the church, and they were opposed to some forms of a rigid scholasticism. You know, okay, okay. Not, we can't, not, not Thomism, not, not all Neo-Thomism, but there was kind of a manual tradition in theology they thought was desiccating. And so they opposed that, and they, they were looked at. Ex explain for people, Joe, who might not know what a manual approach to theology is. Yeah, okay, so you study theology, and you have a course on De Deo Uno, on one God. And so you, you have all these texts, and you have these theses, you know, there is one God, he is simple, all the characteristics you know about the one God. And then you have thesis after thesis after thesis of objections that have been made in the past, and heresies, and so and then these texts, and everything is kind of cut and dried, as they say, very dry <laughs> and very fragmented. And then right. you go to De Deo Trino. Now, God is Trinity. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Father, da, da, da. And you have the theses on the Trinity. And then you have the objections. And then you've got the text, you know, Scripture, and then the Fathers, and so on. It was all very scholastic in the sense of analyzed and broken into parts. But there was a great division between spirituality and theology. I mean, the great fathers of the church were, were they were bishops and they were theologians together, and they were contemplatives as well as being theologians. But theology got fragmented into all these pastoral theology and historical theology. What else we have? Dogmatic theology and exegesis and biblical theology and Trinitarian theology, right? Yeah. But Balthasar wrote a book called Einfaltungen, which is the word doesn't exist in German. He invented it. The word Entfaltung means unfolding like a tree unfolds, you know, in the mm -hmm. branches. And he says, theology has done that. And you got moral theology over here and exegesis over there and history over there. But we need to fold them back in together. We've got to get back to the center. Christ is the center who unifies all these things. So that was the manual tradition, very strong. And they opposed that, not entirely opposed it, but wanted to complement it with a deeper understanding of the fathers of the church, you know, and of scripture. And that was seen as very progressive. Then comes the council, and Ratzinger and Lubach especially were very influential to Ratzinger more than anybody at the council. And then they saw what happened. The council was taken and hijacked, really, by a spirit of the council 
and the spirit of the age, and they saw that what happened after the council did not at all correspond to the text itself of the council, what the council actually did. So, so the interpretation of the council from uh, people who were interpreting it was not authentic to the actual documents themselves. That's exactly right. And that's why John Paul II was a pope of the council. And when Ratzinger gave his first speech, a speech he wrote himself in Latin, and it was beautiful the way he laid out his program, and his program was to restore the proper interpretation of the council. And on December 22nd in 2005, when he talked to the cardinals in Rome, he gave that very famous speech where he says there's two ways of looking at the council. One is as a rupture from the past, and one is as a renewal. Mm. And he says, we want to foster the continuance of that renewal interpretation. That's good. Through Ignatius Press, you've done a lot of the publication of Benedict's interviews with Peter Sewald, the German reporter, many of his theological works. Looking back over what you've published and what you know of Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, Professor Ratzinger, what do you think are the several of the most significant theological writings that he's produced, encyclicals included, that are transformative for the church, if you would uh, highlight, uh, well, highlight some? One of his earliest books— Introduction to Christianity is, powerful. A, is a foundational, powerful book. That should be read by anybody who's interested seeing their faith expressed intelligently in a rational way. I think his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, which one of the few books, by the way, that he wrote as a book, most of his books are collections of articles or collections of talks and so on. That I have said publicly, we'll say it again, it is the greatest book I'm aware of ever written on the Mass. It's not very long. And it, it's quite readable. It, it, it's challenging, but readable. And <clears throat> here's the thing about Ratzinger. He was born on Holy Saturday morning, 4 a.m. in the morning. And his mother brought him to church at 8.30 a.m. In those days, the Easter Vigil Mass was held on Holy Saturday morning. And he was baptized. And so he was born in the middle of the Easter Triduum. And he's always had a love of the liturgy. In Germany, there is a, a book that was... I think they still have it in all the parishes, but they, they've had it for certainly for up till 20 years ago called Schott, S-C-H-O-T-T. -T. It's a book that has all the prayers of the Mass, you know, Latin and English. It has all the hymns, German, Latin, has some other things. But it, it's basically a liturgical book for parish use of all the Catholics in Germany. And he used to love that book. I mean, he'd read through that thing, and it, he became attached to it. So the liturgy has always been, I think, at the center. And by the way, a little anecdote on this. On the eve of the conclave, I got a call from— The conclave that elected him as pope. Yeah, it's like him. Okay. I got a call from uh, Cardinal Schoenborn. Now, Cardinal Schoenborn and I were good friends because he and I were both at Regensburg together for the same two years, living in the same house for one year. And didn't he do the heavy lifting on the catechism of the Catholic Church? He did. He was he was the secretary appointed by Ratzinger to do the overall organization okay. of the catechism. So he, uh, he calls me up on his handy, his little cell phone. <laughs> he says, Joe, I've got to go into silence uh, you know, tonight. From the point of view in America, now, what, what do you think we need in the next pope? Well, there's a friend, a mutual friend of Christoph Schönborn's and mine. His name Franz Gotterborg. He's a layman who, with Schönborn, had started a little retreat house at the former monastery in Retz, Austria. And Franz was a very intelligent guy, but he was a peasant-type guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he did the gardening and he kept up the house and did the carpentry and so on. But he had deep, deep, deep practical wisdom. So anyway, so when Schoenborn asked me, well, you know, what are your suggestions for the next pope? I said, I have, I have the person. He says, who? I says, Franz Gotterberg. Of course, Franz is married and a layman. <laughs> but I, I said, look, we, we, we 
to get someone with practical skills. Right. But I said, here, here's what I think, Christoph. That's the builder side of you coming out again. So, <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> I said, you know, I mean, the Pope it has so many things he's got to do. You know, he's got relations of states. You know, he's got the religious orders. He's got priests. He's got bishops. He's got, you know, the politics to take care of and the ecumenism. But, you know, the one thing which is at the heart of our life is the liturgy. We need a Pope who really loves and knows the liturgy. And I remember what he said, do you mean our Cardinal? And I said, yes, our Cardinal. <laughs> our Cardinal. <laughs> and so Ratzinger was elected. Very good. So you, so you, you did that, too, the smartest guy in the world there, see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The liberal Catholic news outlet, National Catholic Reporter, different than the National Catholic Register, wrote at the time of Benedict's resignation in an article they titled, God's Wattweiler Silenced Many as Head of Doctrinal Congregation. So here's a little excerpt from that February 27th, 2013 article as prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and it says this. This is a quote from the, the NCR. During his time at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, 1981 to 2005, the office became one of the most controversial Vatican agencies. He decried secularization, liberation theology, radical feminism, homosexuality, religious pluralism, and bioethics. So they kind of pick a smorgasbord of topics to highlight. From that list, what caused the most pushback from the progressive elements in the church and the secular media? He wasn't against bioethics. I know, I know. I, I think, you know, they, they didn't even contextualize why they threw right, that in. Right, but it all comes back to sexual morality. I mean, contraception, abortion, uh, ordination of women, that sort of stuff. So that that's where the pushback is. It, it's not part of the radical agenda, and so they oppose it. You know, what I think, Joe, at, at the most elemental level, and I think this is, uh, I don't know where Ignatius was given the insight to call Satan the enemy of human nature. But I think a lot of what we're seeing today is the deconstruction of human nature as created in God's image and likeness. Absolutely. And there's something incredibly demonic about it. Well, I, I tell people that, you know, if, if you didn't believe in Satan and you want to invent him, you want to make him kind of an anti-God figure, right? So what's the first thing God says in Genesis to, to human beings? Be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. multiply and fill the earth. And so if you want to be anti-God, what do you say? Don't be fruitful. Don't multiply. Don't fill the earth. Pretty obvious. Yeah. Here's another, another quote from that same article. It says, numerous Catholics found themselves in hot ecclesial water. Father Hans Kung, Jesuit Father Karl Rahner, Seattle Archbishop Raymond Hunthausen, Leonardo Boff, Father Charles Curran, Father Tisa Bellasuria, Jesuit Father Roger Haight, Father Matthew Fox, Loretto sister Janine Gramic, Salvatoran father Robert Nugent, Dominican father Gustavo Gutierrez, and Jesuit father Jacques Dupuy, among others. So that's, again, quite a list of people that they say he went after. Any general thoughts on the theological personages that this article is naming? Well, I would say that they didn't get in the hot water, but rather warm water, because Ratching was always wanted to talk to them, respond to them try and discuss things with them, but he had a role, a task of defending the orthodoxy of the, of the faith. I mean, if I'd been there, I would have turned up to eat past boiling. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very measured person. I, th I think you're right. I think that's a very, I think that is the kind of the takeaway point here in terms of hot water, warm water. He was just basically seeking 
clarification and giving them an opportunity to clarify things that could be construed as contra to the tradition, the teaching church, etc. And what did he do to harm them except to say what you say is not consistent with the church teaching? Right. Ratzinger has a right to that opinion, and he has a right to say it, especially when he's speaking in the name of the church. Hello, welcome back to the Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. I'm your host, Father Bill Watson, and we're concluding part two of a two-part interview with Father Joseph Fessio of the Society of Jesus. In this final section, we look at the difference between the theologians Karl Rahner and Hans Urs von Balthasar, the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI, and thoughts that Father Fessio has on the cusp of turning 80 years old on the 10th of January 2021, his life, his career, what he thinks are the highlights, and what he would still like to accomplish. So this is Jesuit Podcast, Father Joseph Fessio, SJ. I would like to read you this quote that came out from a very, very recent article in Catholic World Report, which is a publication of Ignatius Press, in defense of Hans Urs von Balthasar, whom we've been talking about. Oh, yeah. The two kind of towering theologians of the 20th century, in many people's minds, would be Jesuit Karl Rahner and the former Jesuit but still priest Hans Urs von Balthasar, who have both gone to their heavenly rewards. In a recent article in the Catholic World Report, the writer states, not without reason did folks, including Joseph Fessio S.J. and Joseph Ratzinger, consider Balthasar to be the preeminent theologian of our time. What they saw in his theology was of immense importance, was his Christocentrism and his insistence on the importance of the particularity of God's unique and unsurpassable revelation in the man Jesus. Does that capture it? It does. I mean, Balthasar is controversial in some circles. He was given the Paul VI Award for Theology by John Paul II. He was a very close friend of both John Paul II and Benedict. And Benedict said in his autobiography, in fact, I got it right here. In fact, I can actually quote it. Wow. Excellent. It's on page 143. Meeting Balthasar was for me the beginning of a lifelong friendship I can only be thankful for. Never again have I found anyone with such a comprehensive theological and humanistic education as Balthasar and de Lubac. And I cannot even begin to say how much I owe to my encounter with them. Now, why is Balthasar controversial? There's, I'll go to two levels here. One level is, as you know right now, there's a lot of pretty serious Catholics and not just arch-conservative Catholics who are kind of questioning the council itself. And anybody, the council or the spirit of the council? The council. You got Vigano, who's kind of off the chart. You've got, I forget the names now, but there's some pretty decent, intelligent Catholics who are starting to say, well, you know, the council was a mistake, uh, it was wrong in these things, and we have to admit that. So those people are suspicious of Balthazar, de Lubac, John Paul II, Ratzinger as modernists. They got rid of the old mass, they got rid of the Thomism and neoscholasticism in the right. seminaries. So they're, they're the bad side. Okay, that's the more general thing. The more specific thing is Balthasar had a position on Christ's passion and death, that Christ's death was a real experience of abandonment by the Father. Now, Ratzinger doesn't agree with him on that, but it's not heretical to hold it. Then Balthasar wrote a book called Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. Completely misinterpreted by a lot of people, especially Ralph Martin, who has no excuse for misinterpretation because he's an intelligent man. Point noted. <laughs> but Balthasar never said that hell is empty. He never said that no one's going to hell, that we're all going to heaven. 
What he said was, we can't be sure of who's in hell, and we have to hope for everyone. And if there's anyone that we should be most fearful about, it's ourselves. Exactly. You know? That, so it's a very spiritual thing, but it's taken as a universalist position that really we are going to go to heaven anyway, so what difference does it make what we do here? Anyway, that has been, I think, the main point of controversy with Balthasar. But if you read his books, I mean, I, we just did one on our book club here called a Short Primer for Unsettled Layman. He wrote it in, 60, in uh, 79. I've got a copy of all those little books of his. So. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. He loves the Lord. His erudition is, is immense. His ability to express it is amazing. So, I mean, there are points in Balthasar where people can disagree. But no, he's not a heretic. He's not a modernist. He's a father of the church, basically a modern father of the church. You know, you use that phrase that von Balthasar, the German word he created, kind of an an unfolding. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Yeah. yeah, I compare and contrast Rahner and Balthasar as Rahner is a linear thinker. And von Balthasar is the big circles, concentric circles that keep kind of coming back on themselves. So I don't know if that's how I kind of see him. In fact, Balthasar phrase recurs a lot, kreisendes denken, circling thought. You have to walk around something and no view is the totality, but you have to look at all those views. And even then, they point to something beyond what you can fully see, the mystery. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff, Joe, in neuroscience today with regards to how people learn and information has to be felt or processed first on the right side of the brain, which is relational. And then it crosses the frontal lobe to the left side of the brain, which is the more rational side. And truths only become kind of embedded in a person's mind and heart when there is a relational dimension to it. And I see that kind of circularity of um, Balthazar as being kind of maybe more on the right side of the brain as opposed to maybe Rahner's left side of the brain articulation of things. So I don't know if that makes any sense. I I think that's a good illustration of it, yeah, a good metaphor for it. And and Rahner, especially the early Rahner, did wonderful work. But it was highly analytic, as you say. We used to call the course in theology on Rahner, we called it God in space. Because it's <laughs> like, you know, 40,000 feet, you know, yeah. uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of thin air up there. Studies of Rahner have been on the decline, you know, for, I'd say, 20 years. And studies on Balthasar have been on the rise. For- I heard that. I heard that he is quoted more in doctoral dissertations than Rahner is. I'm sure he is, yeah. I was going to ask you a question here in terms of who is going to be the enduring theologian of the two. And obviously, I think your answer is going to be von Balthasar. And I would say that Hugo Rahner may endure more than Karl Rahner. Hugo Rahner still has some marvelous books. He also wrote very beautiful books. And speaking of, of beautiful books on von Balthasar, I love his book on the meditations on the Holy Rosary. Oh, yes. I think, I think it's very, they're very, very powerful. And that's also, does Ignatius publishes that, don't they? We do. Threefold Garland. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I've used that in many, many retreats. Let's switch back to Benedict as Pope and again towards the end of his reign. Are you aware of what was contained in the 2013 reporter dossier that was sent to Pope Benedict about matters in the Vatican regarding financial and moral irregularities that was purportedly leaked to Italian media? I never seen any sections of it reported. Are you aware of what was in there? Only as much as you are, but that wasn't why he resigned. Okay, I was going to ask you, was that the trigger that led to his sudden no, resignation? I, no, It was interesting, in the second Saywald interview book, I forget what it was called, Salt of the Earth or yeah. Man and God or something like that, God and Man, 
But Seewald asked him the question, well, do you, do you think a pope could resign? And Ratzinger, in his very typical, serene and calm way, said, look, if a pope were ever to believe that he was now lacking physical or spiritual strength to carry out his role, he not only could resign, he must resign. When I read that, I knew at that point that he would resign at some point. You know, his health is good in one sense. I mean, he's in his 90s, you know, but he's frail. He's always been kind of frail. He's, he's not an athlete. He's not a John Paul II. And he walks a bit for exercise, but he's never been physically strong. Uh, to me, no surprise at all that he resigned. I was, I was sad that he did it, but he did it for the good of the church. And I think uh, an incredible act of humility. I really do. Yeah. I don't think every pope should be canonized, okay? Right. Uh, just because he's pope. But no one who's worked close with, with Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, thinks other than that he's a saint. I mean, the goodness of the man, the gentleness of the man, the wisdom of the man. Just- yeah, the, the moniker God's Rottweiler, I think, is really oh. <laughs> totally off mark. I Go remember uh, I, I was very popular for the week after he was elected because I was the only person in America that actually knew him really well. And so I was on... <laughs> NBC and CBS and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I remember some of those interviews, Joe. So. And it's a guy who, it's a guy named King. He was, has suspenders. Larry King. Larry King Larry Live. Larry King, yeah. Right. Larry King Live. So he said, well, Father Fescio, you know, uh, why do you think he's changed so much? He, he was called a Rottweiler and so severe, but he seems so kind and gentle. Why has he suddenly changed? I says, Larry, he hasn't changed at all. all the way you've Reported the misreporting, him, the misreporting. You know, right. the misreporting is now shown to be false because now you're seeing who he really is and always has been. This is kind of a maybe kind of on, on the mystical side. On September 4th, 2020, Pope Benedict became the longest lived pope at 93 years and four months, surpassing Pope Leo XIII, who died in 1903. Now, Pope Leo XIII was the pope who received the vision of Satan speaking oh. to the Lord. Mm-hmm. I can destroy your church, but I need more time and power. And the Lord asked how much time and how much power. And Satan's response was 75 to 100 years. The Lord said to him, you have the time, do with them what you will. Pope Benedict is known for a statement that actually is the lead of Father Spitzer's new book on Christ versus Satan, a quote that's in the 2010 interview with Peter Seewald published by Ignatius Press that says, we are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate standard consists solely of one's own ego and desires. So these two longest living popes bookend the times of that 1884 prophecy, give or take 20 years. What are your reflections on this 100-plus-year time frame in light of these two papacies and the crisis engulfing church and the world today? Phil, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I just look around and see the world is much bigger than anything I can control. I see so much good that doesn't get reported as much as the bad. I see so much evil. I think we're filled with lies and misleading reporting and suppression of truth, that it's the devil is the father of lies. That's right. And so here in the office, we got a little family here at Ignatius Press. We pray together and we work on our books and stuff like that. But one of, one of the women here, Roxanne, she says, but, but Father, how can it ever all end unless this happens? We don't expect everything which rises to converge. Uh, you know, <laughs> that uh, you read the, read the book of Revelation, and it's not as if the, the world ends with a great consummation of love, but rather a catastrophic event. So Yeah, Christ said, you know, when the Son of Man returns, will there be any faith left on earth? Yeah. And there will be some. Because the church is guaranteed to the end. Right. 
And we want to be part of that Pusillus Grex, that little flock. But we want to make the flock as big as we can. Right. You know, Rasek predicted all this back in 1969, 50 years ago. And they said, what's the church going to look like? And he said, well, I'm not a prophet. But looking at, at that past history and looking at what we can see now, I see that there'll be less and less influence in the church. There'll be fewer and fewer members of the church. They'll be more intense, more intentional, more devout. And they will represent an oasis. And when the world reaches the end of its rope and finds out where it's led itself, it'll be there for people to come back to. So he's always talking about creative minorities. So we have to be faithful. You know, and Christ himself didn't convert the whole world by any means. That's true. I'm starting through a Sacred Story Institute, versions of those little intentional communities. I'm calling it Sacred Story Community. And we're in a beta test of it right now. So there's a candidacy period, and then there will be an initiation, and then a membership. It's different, but not unlike the old sodalities of the society, which were built around, when they started, the daily examination of conscience and frequent confession. So I'm building those. We got test groups in Florida, in California, and Seattle, the Northwest region. So I'm really hoping those will take off. And I mention that in light of the small intentional communities and the light that they can be when people start looking and they're saying, you know, where do we go for this? You know, when I was at Georgetown and I was building retreat programs there, I came back from one retreat and it was just an incredibly consoling experience. And I I said to myself, I said, I'm building an ark for the future. So I think of kind of like these small communities as arcs that people can get in in times of great crisis and confusion. That's the hope. And I think actually looking at the planet, if you leave Africa out, which I think is thriving religiously. It is indeed. But everywhere else, I think the, the United States is in a very healthy condition as far as the church goes. I mean, when you think about the laity now, the blogs that are out there, the homeschooling, I call homeschools the monasteries of the new dark ages, groups like you've started, Catholic groups forming a new Catholic independent school movement, over 200 of those schools. There's a lot of vitality in the Catholic church. I'm ready to sing my nunc dimittis, but I'm not worried about what comes at me because the generations after me, they're far more aware than I ever was at their age. And I look at Ignatius Press, you know, we sell two million books a year, but each book is a seed, okay? Exactly. It, it grows and it flowers, and we're just one of many. I mean, when we started, you know, we were about the only serious Orthodox Catholic publisher that was around in 1978 because everything collapsed after the council. But now we've got a lot of competitors, and I'm happy for it. What was the first book Ignatius published? Well, it's a little complicated because we actually had a conference in 1978 on Humanae and we published a translation of Humanae by Father Caligari. And so that was a little pamphlet. We had a grant for two books. The one we wanted to be first was Heart of the World by Hans von Balthasar, and the other was Woman in the Church by Louis Bouillet. And it turned out because of publication times and everything or schedules that I think Bouillet's book came out a month before Balthasar's. But those were our two first books, Woman in the Church by Bouillet, still in print, Heart of the World by Balthasar, still in print. I want to do two more sections, the last one being a conclusion as you look towards your 80th birthday in a few days. But I want to do like a looking at the three popes, John Paul II, St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, and asking the same question about each of them. What is the enduring legacy of St. John Paul II for the church and the world? I think his uh, promotion of the real Vatican Council showing unity of faith and reason, bringing a powerful intellect, philosophical intellect to bear on the faith. That's a legacy which will last, I think. 
His encyclical, uh, Fides et Ratio, right? Yeah, he had a lot of good encyclicals. With Benedict, I'd say pretty much the same thing with this difference, that I think the writings of John Paul II will be read and remembered, especially by scholars, because they're more philosophical. Whereas Pope Benedict, his writings, both before and as Pope, he was broader, theological, you know, humanistic, art, music, literature, history, and he was like, it's like John's gospel. John's gospel is the easiest Greek in the New Testament, but it's the most profound in many ways. That's sure. why he's given the, the image of an eagle, okay? And that's the beautiful thing about Ratzinger Benedict is that he had all this to draw on, but he could express it in ways which were poetic, full of images. He'll always bring in images, and it always relate back to Scripture very directly. So I think that his corpus of writing will be a great legacy that the church will have. If the church lasts another thousand years, he'll be named with Augustine and Aquinas, Gory, and so on. He'll be named like that. For Francis, too soon to tell, I would say, very hard to follow in intellectual footsteps of JP two and Bennett, and he doesn't follow in those. So he's more pastoral, and I guess that'll be his legacy, what he's done pastorally for the church. So let me do a little conclusion reflection okay. here as you approach your 80th birthday on the 10th of January, 2021. You were born in 1941. So as you look back over eight decades, what do you consider as the legacy that will bear fruit that endures to eternity? Well, I do think that the books that we publish at Ignatius Press on acid-free paper that will last 700 years. <laughs> and we've, we've, we've published about 50 million. Incredible. They're, they're not going to go away. They're seeds. And most of those books are inspirational, you know, and uh, nourishing. So that'll be a legacy. And then, you know, I, I taught and I started a program in University of San Francisco called the St. Innocence Institute lasted for 25 years, and I still have contact with the students, but they've had their families now. And, you know, when you teach young people and help them strengthen their faith and equip them to go out into the world and not just maintain, but spread the faith, that has eternal consequences. And likewise, I, when, I, when I taught and was at Ave Maria University in Florida, same thing, all the people I met there, the students I was in contact with, that's a legacy. It's a legacy of any parent, and mm -hmm. we are fathers after all. You spoke so movingly about your experience uh, at Jesuit High School in San Jose, and all three of these things that you're talking about are in terms of kind of like building and forming people, so maybe the inspiration does go way back. It does, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Looking ahead, God knows how many years we have left. Uh, 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 I, see a, I see a tombstone. <laughs> you see a tombstone. There's that great New Yorker uh, cartoon, a picture of a tombstone, and it says, never sick a day in my life, and now this. <laughs> <laughs> so, but looking ahead, what's one more thing you would still like to accomplish for the church and the kingdom of Christ Jesus? Well, I, I want to keep Ignatius Press going, which we do. We have a lot of partnerships. We love partnerships. So we have a partnership with the Augustine Institute, a very fine program in Denver for theological formation, but also they have formed.org. And I've, I've, I've got stuff on form.org through Sacred Story Institute it's as well. Net, it's a Catholic Netflix. So we have an influence there, and we also get some income from that. We have a partnership with Five Stones in Sycamore, Illinois. They are a Catholic service organization, does uh, uh, website development and customer service and warehousing fulfillment. And we have a warehouse there we built, and that's growing. 
Great. And so we want to we want to automate that. I've become a very close friend of a man, a wonderful man named Ilias Khan. He is a former Muslim, became Catholic partly from reading from Balthasar. He's extremely wealthy now uh, because he did a successful businessman. But he has started a company in 2014 called Cambridge Quantum Computing. It is right now the leading quantum computing software company. And so I, we're in touch all the time, and I'm excited. You know, my own engineering. Uh, exactly sure but we're going to become i think this month shareholders in the company and i believe it'll be like becoming shareholders in in google or amazon years ago sure so wonderful i want to to see that brought to inclusion and then if we start getting more income i never much never much of a film person don't watch movies for very often but i think visual is important and so we may start making movies as well as books i don't know i think the visual is very important they they say that in, in just a year or two 80% 80% of internet traffic is going to be video. So that's what people are looking at to shape them. That's why, in fact, I'm, I'm uh, talking to you from our new little studio that we have built here, kind of forced by the pandemic, but we'll have a film studio for green screen filming and a little studio set and things like that. So Well, we should have done this in video then, too. We could yeah. have. But I, I think there's something powerful in the spoken word. It, lets, it gives people uh, more freedom to kind of imagine and to think. That's exactly right. I think Lewis or Tolkien said there's death in the camera. That right. is, when you when you read a book, you are creating your own images, That's not right. the authors, you know, whereas when you watch a movie, it, it's uh, passive. That's right. Well, Joe, I want to thank you very much. Happy birthday and congratulations. Yeah, congratulations on your fidelity to the gospel, to the church, to the society. Uh, you have impacted the lives of tens of thousands of people, mine included, and I'm incredibly grateful that you live, that you've done what you've done, and that you took the time for this conversation. Thanks, Bill. Keep up the good work. And I'd like to know if you'd end us with a prayer and a blessing for those who will listen to this podcast. Sure. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on all those who will be listening to this. May it inspire them and help them in their own faith. Benedictio Deum Potentis Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, et Sendus Pervos, et Maniat Semper. Amen. Amen. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.